From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. Many developing nations are struggling with debt as a result of responding to climate-related disasters. Countries have incurred a significant amount of loss and damage from climate change. In Dominica, it's 85%. In Belize, you're talking about 7% each year of its GDP that is lost to climate-related disasters. Also, the cool breeze of fall has arrived, but that doesn't mean gardening has to end. It's a time to think ahead because you can look around, you see the bare spots in your yard, and you see, okay, next year, we're going to do something about this. And also time to think back and say, wow, I did a pretty good job. (laughs) On some of this, anyway, you know. (laughs) That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. The world's oceans are increasingly a dumping ground for our waste. Each year, roughly 10 million metric tons of plastic end up in the oceans, and that number is expected to double in the next 15 years. By some estimates, there could actually be more plastic by weight than fish in the oceans in less than 30 years. And the damage is enormous. Plastic is eaten by wildlife that starve from malnutrition. It's acidifying ocean water and entangling whales. The scale of the challenge is staggering, but activists like Leftaris Arapakis are taking action. Leftaris started the nonprofit Analia to enable Greek fishermen to become part of the solution by collecting plastic along with their fishing haul. Leftaris was named the UN Young Champion of the Earth Regional Winner for Europe in 2020, and he joins me now for more. Leftaris, welcome to Living on Earth. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's really exciting to be here together. Well, please start by telling us about the fishing community of Piraeus, where you grew up. Uh, what did you see there that led you to take on marine plastic? Well, the, the fishing community of Piraeus is not as exotic as it sounds. Uh, Piraeus is actually the main port of Athens, and Athens is the capital of Greece. So, you know, it's pretty much a very industrial region. My family is a family of fishermen. They are like five generations now fishing professionally from the sea. So as a child, uh, my first memories were from from the sea, you know, on a boat. So it it really affected who I am. But I would have never imagined that this would make me collect plastic from the sea. But uh, when the economic crisis, uh, you know, peaked in Greece, like in 2016, unemployment skyrocketed. So I wanted to do something about unemployment. And uh, I was discussing back then with my father, and he was complaining to me, like typical fisherman behavior, that they couldn't find enough personnel for the fishing boats. So I'm like, okay, I'll start a fishing school and we'll start training unemployed people to become fishermen. So this is how we started an alia. We trained like around 150 unemployed people who created around 100 jobs in the country. So when we're designing the curriculum on the first fishing trip, I was really shocked to see that the fishermen were collecting with their nets not only fish, but also plastic. Like a lot of it. And I still remember in the first cuts, we got like the soda drink that had expired in 1987. So that's like in the sea for 30 years. A soda bottle. Yeah. And then the fisherman just took it from my hand and he threw it back in the sea. But we fished like the next day so many plastic bottles, plastic bags, uh, fishing nets, even a whole refrigerator. And it just threw it back in the sea. And then I started reading all the papers that were indicating that by 2050, we'll have more plastic than fish in the seas if we continue like that. So we realized there's no use getting there more fishermen if we don't do something about the plastic. And so we started to decided to start a pilot in, in our local port here in Piraeus, in the fish market of Keracini. And in the beginning, it was just you know my father and one of his friends. And what was shocking was that it was not coming all from Greece. Like we collected a lot of, you know, plastic bottles from Egypt or a lot of uh, soda drinks from Turkey, a lot of beers from Italy, even a TV from Spain. Mm. So we realized that, you know, marine litter is is kind of, is not a national challenge, but in our case, a Mediterranean challenge. So that's why we created a project called the Mediterranean Cleanup. And with that project, we started training fishing communities to fish for plastic. 
So how does your project actually work? How did you convince fishermen to collect plastic and fish? And then, you know, how did you make it worth their while to do so? We were having a lot of meetings with alcohol, so that helped to bond with the fishermen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I would end up going to the local cafes or supermarkets where the family of the fisherman was working. And I was explaining to them what we were doing. And, and then they were asking me all the time, has my husband joined the project yet? I'm like, no, no, he's still considering. And then they would say, you know, he's considering no more. <laughs> so <laughs> the main motivation for them was to protect the sea, but also to create a positive storytelling. The fishermen were a part of the problem and a big one. Around 20% of the plastic we collect is uh, fishing gear. Mm -hmm. So they wanted also to become a part of the solution. And in the beginning, we started with a volunteering scheme, but then we had a small reward system. So they get like 10 to $50 a month regarding on how much plastic they collect. And we saw that when we started giving something back, they started collecting like seven times more plastic. If I can give you an example... Please. There was this fishing port in, in the north of Greece. So I was discussing with uh, the president of the fishermen there, and he told me, Lefteris, I will collect plastic, but none of the rest will. I'm like, okay, do that, and let me deal with the rest. So I had this discussion with each and every one of them, 40 times on that day. And the local recycling company gave us like, uh, you know, uh, an urban recycling bin for the plastic. And they told me, if you manage to fill it up in a year, it will be a miracle. The next night comes, the fishermen come in the port, all of them, and they fill the port with plastic. Like over the first two hours, we filled six of these recycling bins. And then all of them, they were just looking at how much plastic they collected. And they were like, oh my God, where are we collecting so much plastic every day, all these years, and throwing it back? What have we been doing? And And then... After the first day, these guys became activists, actually. And then they started recruiting more and more and more fishing communities. So how is it working out now? You know, do you have any numbers on how much plastic you've actually collected, you know, daily, weekly, monthly? And, mm -hmm. and how many fishermen are you working with? So currently we're working with uh, more than 2,000 fishers in the Mediterranean and Kenya. And we are collecting around 10,000 pounds of plastic from the sea weekly. So that's the equivalent of collecting two trucks full of plastic from the sea daily. Since we started our project, we have collected over a million pounds of plastic from the oceans. And our goal is to collect more than 20 million pounds from the ocean uh, in the next two years. Wow, that's a wonderful goal. Now, collecting plastic is one thing, but making sure it doesn't end up in a landfill is quite another have you tackled that side of the equation? You know, where is all this plastic going once you've collected it and it's on land? So in the beginning, we were collecting all this plastic, you know, vast amounts. We had no idea what to do with that. Because plastic from the ocean, plastic from the seas, is not like regular plastic. It has algae on it. It has mussels. It has oysters. It has dead fish. But over a lot of experimentation, we found the certified recycling companies in every port. So we have also personnel that take every night the plastic from the fishing communities. Then this plastic is washed and then it's turned into little balls of plastic called uh, pellets. And this material then can be melted to create new products such as tables, chairs, benches, shoes, jackets, uh, even skateboards. So when you put a price on that and these products help us do that, we can motivate more and more fishing communities to collect the plastic from the seas and the oceans. You know, I've heard marine plastic described as, you know, you come home and your bathtub is overflowing with water. The tap is running. There's water seeping through the ceiling. What's the first thing you do? It's turn off the tap, right? Not clean up the floor. Have you thought or, or worked with partners to look upstream at the plastic problem right now? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're cleaning up the floor, which is very, very useful and, you know, super important, but it's going to keep coming, right? Mm -hmm. So have you worked with any partners to, you know, turn off the tap? You make an excellent point. What we're doing with the cleanup operations is just treating the symptoms of the problem. We're not fighting the cause of the problem. We need to stop plastic from entering the sea. So on that regard, the most common plastic waste we find both in Kenya, in Greece, and in Italy is fishing gear. So on that regard, we are now working over the last three years with the fishing communities to collect their used fishing gear and prevent it from entering the ocean at the first place. 
and then making sure that this material is going to be recycled and upcycled into new products. And the second we'll try to do is we are working with international organizations such as the European Commission or the United Nations. And we're trying to take part in these conversations. We are part of the UN Ocean Conferences, the COP. And we try to provide some working solutions and we try to provide some data about the plastic that's currently in the oceans to make them create some new laws about sustainable plastic use. We don't find plastic straws in the seas, in the oceans. It's like 0.000002% of the plastic. We find fishing nets. We find shipping ropes. We find plastic bags. And we need to have some legislation to ban them or invest in a circular economy of them. So long-term, what is your goal with your organization? Where do you see yourself with this project, you know, 20, 30 years from now? Well, in 20 years, honestly, hopefully then, I see myself unemployed. Hopefully we will be able to create a solution for, for plastic. And to make that happen, we need to scale up even more our plastic cleanup operations. We need to prevent more plastic from entering the sea with the fishing communities. It's not easy what we do. It's something you must be passionate about. And I am. And honestly, I, I really want to have a significant and a real impact. And yes, getting out of business is, it's, is the best way to, to achieve that. Well, I wish you so much luck in putting yourself out of business and uh, <laughs> cleaning up the ocean and the Mediterranean. Leftaris Arifakis is founder of Emilia and a Young Champion of the Earth 2020 regional winner for Europe. Leftaris, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for the interview and the amazing questions. By the way, a recent study published in the journal Science Advances estimates that nearly half a million miles of fishing line are lost in our oceans each year. That's enough to stretch all the way to the moon and back. Coming up, in many developing nations, upwards of 50% of the national debt comes from the high cost of responding to climate change disasters. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Let's talk about setting the mood. That's right, the mood. You know, when you want to get intimate, be it by yourself or with a partner, there is something you need to have on your nightstand. Maud, a female-led Latinx company founded by Eva Goigochea and created for all bodies, genders, and races. Maud is redefining what sexual wellness and modern intimacy looks like, creating the next chapter in the sexual wellness industry. Maud makes modern, body-safe, high-quality essentials for before, during, and after sex. A whole variety of products, like vibrators, lubricants, and massage candles. The products are absolutely beautiful, with a lot of attention paid to design, sustainability, and inclusivity. If sexual wellness had a name, it would be Maud. Get 15% off your first order using the code LIVINGEARTH. Go to getmod.com slash livingearth. That's getmaude.com slash livingearth. You deserve a night in. If you like listening to Living on Earth, please join us by telling people you know to tune in to our podcast. And if you can, please send us a donation. $5 or more makes a difference. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. Thanks. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. In a minute, the climate debt crisis. But first, this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. After mating... Male Philippinella prominence, an orb-weaving spider species, leap away from cannibalistic females at speeds of up to nearly three feet per second, researchers recently reported in Current Biology. Some spiders jump to capture prey or avoid predators, but the researchers said that P prominence is unusual among spiders because males leap away from their mates to avoid being cannibalized by the female spiders after mating. The females of many spider species eat their male sexual partners after mating. According to researchers at Miami University in Ohio, the reason for female spiders cannibalizing male spiders appears to be a factor of size. In spider species where males are small, they are more likely to become prey because they're easier to catch. 
The larger female spiders eat their smaller male mates because the females are hungry and because they can catch them. Scientists studying P. prominence mating behavior observe that males always seem to catapult away from the female, but the males move so fast that ordinary cameras couldn't capture the details of the male's leaps to safety. High-resolution video recorded the male spider's speed from around one foot to three feet per second, the researchers reported. Out of 155 successful matings that the researchers observed, 152 males leaped to survival. The three male spiders that didn't leap were eaten by the female spiders. The scientists also used an experimental design that prevented 30 male spiders from jumping to safety after mating. All 30 of those experimental males were cannibalized by their mates. Pea prominents are native to Asian countries, including Korea and Japan, and are a social species. Up to 300 of the spiders may come together to weave a colony of adjacent webs, but female pea prominents appear to leave their neighbors alone and strictly cannibalize their mates. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Don Lyman. The rich nations of the global north are responsible for the vast historical amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. But some of the poorest nations are being crippled by debt related to loss and damage from storms, fires, droughts, and other impacts of climate disruption. And after years of talking but not acting on loss and damage at the UN climate summits, there are signs a confrontation is brewing for this year's summit, COP27, that begins in Egypt on November 6th. A coalition of 20 developing countries recently declared they are considering halting repayment of their debt, totaling more than $600 billion. Maldives' former president, Mohamed Nasheed, spoke for the coalition calling it an injustice that developing nations must take on debt to rebuild from the climate disasters caused by the developed world. Living Honor Steve Kerwood recently hosted a panel discussion on the climate change debt crisis along with ProPublica. Panelists included ProPublica reporter Abram Lustgarten, Colin Young, Executive Director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, and Avinash Prasad, advisor to Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley. Steve began with Mr. Prasad and asked him to explain the scale of the climate debt crisis in the Caribbean. The countries that are being impacted the most, they're having to deal with this loss and damage. About 50% of the increase in debt in small island states is caused by mopping up after natural disasters, 50%. The impression given by the international financial institutions is that it's because they're corrupt. It's because they're spendthrift. 50% is caused by global warming and other natural disasters. So the climate crisis means for us the debt crisis. And that's why we're campaigning heavily that we need to invest in resilience And that requires borrowing concessional funding to invest in resilience. Every dollar we spend today, we save six or seven dollars in the future. The problem is middle income countries, the only countries that can get concessional funding are countries whose income per head is less than $1,253 per year, not per month, per year. Well, 75% of the world's poor don't live in those countries. And so these countries need to be investing in climate resilience. They can't afford it. It's creating these loss and damage, creating these debts. And we're arguing that one of the things we want, one of the three main things we want, is that they should have access to concessional funding to invest in climate resilience, to avoid the loss and damage. My prime minister famously says that giving us money after the event is like paying for the undertaker. We want investment now to avoid the loss of lives and loss of livelihoods in the future. So, Colin Young, now you're the executive director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center. So tell me, what kinds of investments should these international organizations be making? Of course, I'm thinking of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, uh, which seem to be a little slow on the uptake here, to put it mildly. I mean, what sort of investments should they be making? And frankly, how much of these investments should be concessional loans and how much of them should be in outright grants, given the responsibility of the rich part of the world for the loss and damage that's occurring right now? So right off, we will need investments in how to keep out the sea. 
from rising. Not only is that tearing apart our beaches, but it's also salinizing our freshwater systems. The Caribbean has seven of the most water-scarce countries in the world. The issue with coastal defenses, however, is that they're public goods and they're critical to our adaptation strategies, but you can't get a rate of return in investing in some of these adaptation initiatives. So those are obviously going to be grants or very highly concessional loans. The other area is in water. We absolutely need to build up the water infrastructure. When you look at the projections, areas will become even more dry. And obviously, this now impacts not only just the availability of water, but it impacts food security, it impacts health. And so we have to look at how do we improve rainwater collection. We look at how do we solid waste management and treatment so we can reuse those waters for agriculture and in recharging our aquifers. Again, this is an area where grants and highly concessional loans will make the most sense because, again, they're, they're public goods. Infrastructure, our housing stocks, the fact that most of the infrastructure we have in the region, which is, you rightly said, is one of the most climate vulnerable in the world, was not built to accommodate the kind of deluge that we're seeing in rainfall patterns across the region. For every one degree Celsius rise in temperature, the air holds 7% more moisture. And so we are starting to see some incredible amount of rainfall where in 12 hours, we're talking about two, three feet of feet of rain. So obviously our drainage will not be able to accommodate this amount of water. So what you have here is that countries have incurred a significant amount of loss and damage from climate change. In Dominica, it's 85% of the debt is linked to hurricanes. In Belize, you're talking about 7% each year of losses and damages of its GDP that is lost to climate-related disasters. So what has happened is the countries don't have the fiscal space to be able to then invest in rebuilding. And let me say one other point before I end this section here. We don't want to think of these disasters as sequential events because they're happening in parallel, right? You might have a drought that is ongoing for multiple years, and then you have a significant rain event that may not be a hurricane that can cause 80% damage to your GDP, like what happened with Tropical Storm Erica in Dominica. And then a few years later, you had Maria. And then you have these multiple in parallel disasters that are absolutely a stranglehold on the economies of the region. The monies that we are getting from the international financial mechanism, they're often too small, too slow to get. And by the time you do get them, you can count multiple major disasters that would have happened between the time you applied and when you got those financing. If we look at Central America and the dry corridor in Central America and the areas where there's massive droughts, where people can't feed their families and feed their kids, there are not many things that cause people to pack up and leave. Drought and not being able to grow food is one of them. Those people will end up in the north. The people from the Caribbean, when we start losing our, our land to sea, sea level rises, and we are projecting an 80% increase under some scenarios of Category 4 and 5 hurricanes to be hitting our region, that is just going to be a disaster zone and people will have to move. And this issue of migration, there is a tremendous cost, not only to our economies in the region, but to the countries where those people will be ending up. So we also have to look at factoring in those costs of inaction, because if we don't do and invest in the kinds of things we need to be doing now, the cost is going to quadruple down the road. And there's also going to be issues with political instability in the back door. Well, yes, and the UN climate facilities, the $100 billion a year that was supposed to be coming, we haven't seen that money yet. So what has changed in terms of the evolution of the IMF and World Bank and then the efforts to have this UN climate facility also address this? Abram Losgarten, you reported on this issue for ProPublica. How much of these banks started to move things forward? I mean, to what extent are climate risks and loss and damage now appearing in their calculations? 
The short answer is they haven't moved it forward. You know, there have been moments of hope. Um, the agreement, like you mentioned, to to raise $100 billion to fund transitions in climate-stressed countries. I think the last time I checked that, that something around $19 billion had been spent, and that agreement's from 2015. And if all of that money had been spent, it would just be a pittance compared to what's needed. We see, a, you know, a need of something like $50 trillion to help these countries transition into, you know, a more climate-safe future. But you hear you get a sense of the sentiment of where the world is in the comments of people like John Kerry a couple of weeks ago in New York, who dismissed outright, you know, the notion that the United States, the wealthiest country in the world, would pay loss and damages for climate distressed countries. And we're going to the COP conference in Egypt in just a couple of weeks, and this is going to be the top of the conversation. So, Colin Young, can you paint us a picture of just how much climate finance is flowing from north to south or from developed countries to those most stressed by climate disruption? I think developed countries had promised since 2015 a measly $100 billion a year. Measly. Look at how much money has flowed to the Ukraine, albeit that is a a disaster in its own right, within months. And the entire set of developed countries have been unable to mobilize even $100 billion since 2015. In fact, by the time they meet it, which they promised to in 2023, we would be in deficit by $90 billion because we're roughly about $70 billion a year is what's flowing from north to south. And that's with a very liberal definition of what is called climate finance. Because as you know, one of the issues in the negotiations is that a number of developed countries continue to block the definition of what constitutes climate finance. And once you don't define it, it's hard to actually track what it is. Avi Prasad, the floor is yours now. So how should the more responsible parties in the developed world go about mobilizing the much-needed climate finance for countries such as Barbados, where you advise the prime minister? You know, when you sit in the South, we're burning up or we're drowning. And one thing that does is focuses the mind on practical solutions. And I think there are two things that's very important for your listeners to appreciate. One is there's a scale problem. The entire global aid budget, aid for everything, aid for clean drinking water, for education, for health, everything is $160 billion per year. And it's not going up, it's going down. It's being redirected to foreign policy. Sending in stuff to Ukraine has been counting as aid. So, you know, that number is 160 billion. We need a few trillions a year. We need at least $3 trillion a year to mitigate the climate. We need half a trillion dollars a year to adapt to the countries that are vulnerable, to adapt themselves. We need $250 billion a year to deal with loss and damage. And that's in the most extreme loss and damage as opposed to all loss and damage. We've got a scale problem. And the reality is no one's giving us grants. No one's writing us a check for that kind of money. We would like them to. They have a moral duty to. They should do. They're not even taking responsibility for it. That's not going to happen. So the private sector can get involved because... A lot of climate mitigation, what do we mean by mitigation? So, you know, moving from uh, coal-fired power stations to solar power stations, the private sector is prepared to do that because there's money in it for them. Uh, There's great rates of return in the low-carbon transition into energy, transport, agriculture. So we need to use that lever to the full because, you know, we have a shortage of money. But you know what? As Colin said, they're not going to fund seawall defenses. They're not going to fund a new drainage system because there's no money in it for them. They're not going to repair our our leaking taps. There's no money in it for them. They will love to win the contracts, but they're not going to fund it on their balance sheet. And so that's where we need concessional money. By concessional money, we mean the kind of money that we gave Germany and we gave Britain after World War II. The kind of money America gave Germany. America gave Germany, this was 30-year money, this was an interesting contract where Germany didn't have to repay if they didn't have an export surplus. And so any year they didn't have an export surplus, didn't have to repay anything. And then the amount they had to repay was capped at 3.5% of their export earnings. 
three and a half percent of their export earnings. Many developing countries are paying 20, 30 percent of their surpluses. So we need concessional money to invest today for adaptation, but the development banks need to come to the table. At the moment, they're saying, no, we're not doing concessional money to you because you've got too much money because your income per head is over $1,253 a year. And then we need money for loss and damage, but we need to limit it. If we ask for money, for cash, for grants, for everything, we're going to get nothing. So what we're saying is, look, we're not asking for everything. We're asking it not for mitigation. We'll get the private sector to help us build solar farms. We're not asking for adaptation. We'll get the World Bank, if you give us concession money, to make us a stronger, more resilient place. But when a hurricane has come through and wrecked our economies and has made a third of the country homeless, then we need cash and grants. And, and we're talking about maybe this is a levies on fossil fuel consumption. Now, we're in a cost of living crisis, the final point I'd make. So one of the things we're proposing is that, okay, don't add to fossil fuels. But when fossil fuel prices are going to fall back after this crisis, they're going to fall back after the Russian invasion. They're going to fall back at some point after the COVID disruptions. For every 10 percentage points, the fossil fuels fall back. The oil price comes back. The gas price comes back. Take one of those 10 and put it in to a reconstruction fund for when crisis happens in the frontline states. For every 10, put one. That's because we do need grants for loss and damage. We're not going to get grants for everything. We need concessional money for adaptation, and we need to engage the private sector. But the scale of the problem, many people don't understand. But the reality is we need alternative solutions because we're burning up and drowning. That's Avinash Prasad, advisor to the Prime Minister of Barbados. Colin Young, executive director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center. And ProPublica reporter Abram Lustgarden, speaking with Living on Earth, Steve Kerwitt. Thanks to ProPublica for co-hosting the event. You can watch the full discussion at the Living on Earth website. That's LOE.org. We'll stay in the Caribbean now with a trip to Cuba. The island is the only place where you can find the world's smallest bird. Bird Notes' Mary McCann has more. Would you like to see the world's smallest bird? Then you'll need to travel to Cuba. Once on the island, your best bet for tracking down the tiny wonder is to visit a forest edge hung heavily with vines and bromeliads. There, hovering at the flowers, if you squint hard enough, you'll find the bee hummingbird. The bee hummingbird, which is found only in Cuba, is an absolute miniature, even among hummingbirds. It measures a mere two and a quarter inches long. Bee hummingbirds are often mistaken for bees. They weigh less than two grams, less than a dime. That's half the weight of our backyard hummers, like the ruby-throated or rufous. The female builds a nest barely an inch across. Her eggs are about the size of a coffee bean. In flight, the bee hummingbird's tiny wings beat 80 times a second. And during a courtship flight, they beat up to 200 times per second. The male's entire head and throat shine in fiery pinkish red, and blazing red feathers point like spikes down the sides of the breast. A sight to behold. I'm Mary McCann. For photos, buzz on over to the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Coming up, using volcanic ash to sequester carbon and fertilize fields. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from Friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife, it's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol, S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, smeagolguide.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. 
Well, it's time for a trip now beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. What do you have for us this week? Hi, Bobby. There's a peer-reviewed study in the journal Preventive Medicine Reports that says that for the first time, researchers have discovered a link to lower birth weight nationally. Overall, it's about a gram and a half for every 10% increase in areas that are experiencing increasing natural gas production. But in Asian babies, it's nearly twice as much. And in black babies, it's over 10 grams. And natural gas production has gone absolutely crazy. Right. That's the thing. I mean, 10% associated with a gram and a half or 10 grams, I mean, it doesn't sound like too much, but there are some places where we're seeing natural gas production increase by a thousand percent. And we know very well that low birth weight is associated with all sorts of problems, including higher infant mortality and, and long-term health problems. It's a significant issue here. And the boom in natural gas production not too long ago was considered to be a help for curbing climate change because it was said to be cleaner than standard oil and gas production. That's turned out not to be the case as well. Right. They called it a bridge fuel, but seems to be a bridge to more climate problems and health problems. All right. Well, what else do you see for us this week? It's a really interesting thing that we picked up from Fast Company's website. Fast Company told us of a startup that's using the dust from volcanic rock as a carbon capture tool on farms by spreading it as fertilizer. It's been used in farms predominantly in the Midwest. On this one farm that they looked at, it amounted to capturing 384 tons of carbon. This is one of 14 farms that are the sites of an experiment. And it's got some farmers looking at maybe a cleaner way to fertilize, also contributing a little bit of a solution to climate change as well. Hmm. And so how does the chemistry of that work, though? How is volcanic rock going to sequester carbon? The volcanic dust, it's actually basalt, volcanic mineral that's ground into dust, brought in as fertilizer, tends to pull CO2 from the air. And once that's used on these farms, it not only increases production of the crops, but it helps in a big environmental way, something that farmers are beginning to really realize they have a stake in. Seems like a win-win here. I mean, if they get increased crop production and sequester carbon, maybe even get some money for sequestering that carbon. Money may still be the bottom line for farmers who have been known to struggle in recent years But let's call that a win-win-win if it works out to be as good as these first experiments seem to promise. Well, what do you see for us from the history books this week? A 30th anniversary from the campaign season, October 29th, 1992, the incumbent president, George H.W. Bush, went after the rival vice presidential candidate, Senator Al Gore, prominent environmentalist by saying this. You know why I call him Ozone Man? This guy is so far off in the environmental extreme, we'll be up to our neck in owls and out of work for every American. This guy's crazy. He is way out, far out, man. Far out, man. I never really expected to hear that from George Bush Sr. Right, it's kind of the uh, Woodstock edition of George Bush Sr., But even more importantly, four years before, when George Bush beat Michael Dukakis, the Massachusetts governor, for the presidency, he promised to be the environmental president. And he attacked Dukakis over all the pollution in Boston Harbor. And in that four-year swing, he went from making promises to be the environmental president to making jokes about Al Gore, the ozone man. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Bobby. Thanks a lot. And we'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's loe.org.
In the Northern Hemisphere, the days are getting shorter, and for many gardeners, that means it's time to clean up garden beds and get ready for winter. But gardening doesn't have to end when the snow falls. So we turn to Living Honors gardening guru, Michael Weisson. He's the former host of The Victory Garden on PBS and has some tips for extending the growing season, including forcing bulbs. That's a way of bringing flowering bulbs inside to trick them into blooming out of season, something gardeners can do in any part of the country. Michael, welcome back to Living on Earth. I am delighted to be back. Well, you know, frost and and winter is just around the corner. What should people be doing right now to prepare their gardens for the winter that's coming? Well, you know, in the gardening world, it's pretty set by now. You know, the gardening year is essentially over. So, you know, you let things be frosted out. You bring your houseplants in. If you have still houseplants out, time to bring them in. I start looking forward to the things for the winter. Among them, for instance, forcing spring bulbs. It's time to order bulbs now, if you haven't already, both for planting outdoors and for forcing indoors. It's time to look around and assess really what worked well in your garden this year and what didn't. And if it's been a multiple year failure, it's probably time to make some other choices. And that's hard sometimes for people to do. They, you know, they keep trying to do the same thing and it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not working. It's not working. It's like, okay, you know, if you've tried three times growing this and it hasn't grown, time to find something else (laughs) because there's probably some problem and it's probably not you. Yeah. I'm about to give up on carrots, really. I, yeah, I've grown carrots. It's just that carrots are really cheap to buy. And I, you know, new carrots, especially you buy them at the farmer's market or whatever, they all taste really great. So I don't see the value in actually growing carrots. They're very hard to grow. They have to be weeded constantly. Uh, you know, the soil has to be perfect or they all turn into little knobbies. I put my gardening energy elsewhere in leeks, for instance, mm. which are expensive, expensive, and here grow just absolutely beautifully. So love them. Well, There's a lot of reason to that, but I don't want to be outdone by a carrot, you know? (laughs) I don't know. I, I, you know, nature always wins. (laughs) So I suggest graceful surrender and moving on to, you know, to what you do best. You know, some of the things that, for instance, the dahlias did really beautifully this year, as did the, the flowers. They loved all the heat. And the tomatoes did not do so fantastically, late blight and a few other things. So what can I say? You know, you give in whatever you get and you are thankful for that and say, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And it's not just about what you get out of the garden. I always think, you know, it's the the experience that you've had of being outside and observing nature. And there's so much more to it than just, you know, picking a salad for dinner. Well, I will honestly say that this summer, there was no real outside to it. <laughs> uh, it it was, uh, we had one of the hottest summers we've ever had on record. And mm. it was consistently in the high 90s every single day with high humidities. That being said, there were a lot of things that did very well. Squashes, for instance, they love all that heat. Mm-hmm. The beans did all very well. So it really was kind of running out either early morning or late in the evening, you know, grabbing what you can before you turned into a giant ball of sweat and then running back inside. <laughs> Yeah, well, climate change is real. Yeah, many, many days in the high 90s in New England is just not typical for us. No, and it's very hard on the plants. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is that when plants overheat, unless they're a certain type of plant with a certain type of photosynthesis structure with a certain type of number of carbon atoms, they shut down, essentially. Photosynthesis just shuts down. So it can literally get, just like a person on a hot parking lot, you're not going to be doing push-ups or anything. You're just going to be trying to sit there and be as cool as possible. And the plants are the same way. So when you get very long stretches of high temperatures and then more critically, no cool off at night because that's their recuperation period. When the nights stay above 70 degrees, for instance, here, we're in trouble. And that was the way it went for weeks and weeks on end. So essentially everything just was in stasis, um, mm-hmm. you know, suffering through the, suffering through the, the heat. But you get to the flip end of that, the heat, and you, then you get a wonderful fall season. So the beans have now recovered and the flowers are all going strong. The raspberries were bursting all the way through. Again, if you value your time in the garden and if you value the beauty of being outdoors, whatever you get is a bonus, you know, in the process. Yeah, that's so true. Well, it's finally cooling off now. What are you thinking about right now to get through the long winter without your garden? Well, 
I retreat to my greenhouse, which is not something a lot of people are able to do. But that being said, I also force a lot of bulbs and bring them indoors for the winter season. And some things that people don't generally think about, like freesia, which is a South African bulb originally, forces beautifully. A little tricky to get started, but needs some cool temperatures and then off it goes into the house. But I have learned a technique that I have learned from one of the British gardening shows using your forced bulbs as your bulbs for this year and then planting them outside at the end of the spring and planting them into your garden so that the only bulbs I now order are bulbs I actually plan to force. And then at the end of the forcing time, we put them aside. They can go into a basement or unused shed or whatever. And then early in the spring, they can be planted out after they've finished blooming and the frosts are, are done. And then they'll recover and be in the garden for next year. So you don't throw away then all these beautiful bulbs. I, I always have a problem with that. I love paper whites, for instance. They're not hardy here. You can't plant paper whites outside. So all that energy and carbon costs and everything that went into producing those bulbs, and it's extensive. I mean, they're all grown in Holland and then flown here in gigantic 747s and then distributed by trucks all the way across the United States. So there's huge carbon costs in all this. And it just seems a shame to have put all that energy to waste and then simply throw it away. So I don't force paper whites anymore. I generally choose small varieties of daffodils, crocuses, small uh, iris reticulata. A lot of the small bulbs, they all force beautifully hyacinths and things that then can be reused back into the garden. And ever since I've started this process, I feel A, much better about it. And it also saves a ton of money because otherwise you're buying twice, right? You're buying for inside and outside and throwing away the inside, which is bonkers. So it's a wonderful opportunity. There's some tricks to it, though. And I think, you know, one of the things if you're thinking about doing this is that you have to realize that bulbs need a cold period of rest after they've been planted in the pots. They need to go into dormancy and they have to be in temperatures of about 40 degrees for six to eight weeks. So if you're living in the South, you actually have to stick your bulbs into the refrigerator or you buy them <laughs> pre-chilled, which is another way to do it. But in the North, you plant them right about now and you can leave the pots outside or so at, to Christmas or so and then bring them in into a basement or something and then bring them upstairs slowly as you wish to enjoy them. And you can stagger them out over all of January and February and sometimes even into March. So now is the time to think ahead to the winter and, and forcing bulbs. What else are you thinking of in terms of planning for the future, you know, both for the spring and, I don't know, years to, to come? Well, you know, one of the things is now time to reevaluate if what has worked and what has not worked in your garden and also what is on its way out. I've had the death of a friend here this week. My ash tree that was behind my house, one of the reasons I bought it 30 years ago, huge. It was larger than the house was, 100 years old, and has succumbed to the imported Irish ash borer. So it had to be cut down. Uh, yeah, it's too common and too sad that's happening a lot in the region. Yep. Between that and the ash decline, ash were a major part of the New England forests, and now they are not. And this thing was huge. Well, I'll tell you how big it was. It's now a stump, and the stump is six foot in diameter. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, a huge, huge tree. And it shaded the house beautifully in the summer and protected it, and also protected all the gardens that are underneath it, which are shade gardens. Well, guess what? They're not shade gardens anymore. Mm -mm. You know, the house is now exposed to the whole back of the kitchen area is now exposed to, uh, you know, full sun. So there's going to have to be some rethinking in terms of how that goes. I did start a replacement tree a number of years ago, one of the Princeton elms, which is supposedly resistant to Dutch elm disease and is fairly rapidly going. But I will never see a tree in that space and anywhere the equivalent of the tree that that came down. But I think that, you know, people need to think about the sort of longevity of some of the plants in their garden and how gardens have changed and will change over the course of time. One of the things, you know, one of the great adages in gardening is if you're a good gardener, you will ultimately become a shade gardener hmm. because the things that you've planted will grow large and shade out, you know, the things beneath. So you start with 
a plan that is set for full sun, for instance. And over the course of years, five years, 10 years, things change. And I think a lot of times people don't change with them. And a lot of times poor planning is the cause of it. And sometimes even, you know, garden designers like myself poorly plan things. I planted a huge beech tree in what was then a pasture 30 years ago, thinking I wanted a shade tree in the pasture. Well, ultimately, my main garden space moved there. And as the tree has grown, my main garden space, a vegetable garden space, is now being shaded by this gigantic beech tree. And I think to myself, oh, if I had just thought about potential uses for this, I would have moved it 30 feet over in the other direction. So I think it's really important to think about, you know, how things grow and how things mature. And fall is a great time to do that because you can look around, you see the bare spots in your yard and you see, wow, okay, next year we're going to do something about this. So it's a time to think ahead and also to think back and say, wow, I did a pretty good job (laughs) (laughs) on some of this anyway. Michael Wyson is a master gardener. He's been host of the Victory Garden on PBS and a regular gardening guru here on Living on Earth. Michael, thanks again for your time today. It's been really fun chatting with you. As always, Bobby, thank you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Fern Elling, Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Chloe Chen, Iris Chen, Josh Kroom, Jenny Doring, Delaney Dreyfus, Mark Kausch, Karishar Coffey, Mark Seth Linder, Don Lyman, Louis Mallison, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelitis, Jake Rigo, Ashley Sabroto, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bobby Bascom. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. <laughs>